0: All right, good evening, everybody. This is the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies. The day is January 12, 2021. We're going to be doing a continuation of the class that was done Thursday in regards to the events that took place on Capitol Hill on January 6 of this year, six days ago. The first thing is going to be called the New Tactical Orientation by William Z. Foster. Again, William Z. Foster was a leader in the American communist movement in the early half of the 20th century in the CPUSA, which we now understand is the PCUSA at this moment in time. But with that being said, Comrade, if you can start with the New Tactical Orientation by Foster, and then after that, we'll open to questions.
1: The New Tactical Orientation. Dimitrov said, Ours has been a Congress of a New Tactical Orientation of the Communist International. Obviously, this was the case. The tactics of a political party, added Manuliski, are not the spectacles of a musty keeper of the archives who never takes them off, even when he goes to bed. Tactics, which are the sum total of the methods and means of a struggle of a political party, are precisely intended to be changed, if changed circumstances required. The development of the fascist offensive had drastically altered the world's situation. Therefore, the Comintern, with the true Leninist flexibility, had changed its tactics accordingly, and in some respects, also with strategy. This tactical reorientation, however, did not simply imply the repudiation of the former tactical line of the Comintern, but the logical development of it particularly of its established policy of the United Front. The new political line of the Comintern had vast implications. The People's Front, in its application in the individual countries, meant for the communists a broad new policy of developing an unprecedented alliance of the working class, the peasantry, and large sections of the urban middle class. The clear implication in such a wide combination, compromising the majority of a given people, was that the communists, henceforth, must speak not only in the name of the working class, but of the entire nation. The People's Front policy also bore many other important implications. It meant that the communists would work for the creation of democratic governments within the framework of capitalism governments very probably to be regularly elected under bourgeois democracy and with communist participation in them. Experience was to show that the People's Front policy clearly worked out at the 7th Congress was, a decade later, to result in the development of new forms of the dictatorship of the proletariat, or people's democracies. Also, with capitalism greatly weakened, The world socialism and the organizations of the working class vastly strengthened. There was now the possibility, in given cases, of a relatively peaceful establishment of socialism. This possibility was based on the ability of the powerful democratic forces of the people to beat back every effort of the bourgeoisie at counter-revolution.
0: Can we actually stop there and then open it up to questions? Before we go on, I just want to clarify this little piece at the end where Foster says it opened up the possibility of a relatively peaceful establishment of socialism. We have to remember that the comrade is talking in a different time period than we're living in now. And this specific way in which he was analyzing the situation may not apply maybe to our current circumstances in 2021. So we just have to be aware that when he says that, he's not using that as a universal term. He's talking in the specific context of the common term.
2: Remember, Marx said very carefully that the reality changes. What was real yesterday may not be the reality today. As Marxists and people who practice dialectics, we have to look at the situation and change according to that. Now, when this was written, it was during the period of the Popular Front. In the Popular Front, world communist movements, including in this country were very large we were powerful by being very large and powerful the reality of the time was that there were very very many many communists and many socialists working with communists many people who rode the same road as we ride or walked the same road we call them fellow travelers Have you ever heard the term fellow travelers They walk the same road as we do. And they're in the same struggle. And that kind of reality, we can elect that kind of reality. We can elect candidates that would pave the road for a socialist type of economy. That's when the bourgeois state is at its weakest. Remember, they're at their weakest. But Without U.S. imperialism, Chile would have probably succeeded in 1971 when they elected a communist and socialist government. They probably could have succeeded. The only thing that made them not succeed was U.S. imperialism. It stepped in. It gave money to the army to overthrow the government. So without U.S. imperialism, there is a strong possibility that we could get advances. This is not the same situation. The left in the world, since the counter-revolution in the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, the left in the world is very, very, very weak, including in our country. So, as Comrade said, it's a different situation. Thank you.
3: Basically, telling off what Comrade Angelo just said, the goal of MPD to kind of recreate this type of environment, Is the popular front of MPD ideally grow strong enough that this type of world situation that Boston's talking about, is that the goal?
2: Yeah, yeah, you hit it right in the head, comrade. The goal of MPD, notice the terms, movement for a people's democracy. The last time we heard the word people's democracy was in Eastern Europe after World War II. We call them the people's democracies. So yes, you're correct.
1: When it says governments probably to be regularly elected under bourgeois democracy and with communist participation in that, my question to that is, is this just saying that communists should participate in bourgeois elections for the sake of building and reaching out to people? Because as I understand it, there will be no way that communists would be ever successful at least under the conditions that we live in now, I guess.
2: Okay, that's easily answered. We did that and we did win elections. Okay? In New York City. We won we were able to get two communists on the city council. They won the election. One was called Peter Caccioni from the Italian American community. And the other one was Benjamin Davis, who is an African American, Afro American. He won from Harlem. So yes, We can do it, but the the period of time was when we were very large. I explained it before. We had two parties on the line. We had not only the Communist Party, but we were in control of another party in New York City called the American Labor Party, the ALP. So our candidates were on two party lines. We had the influence. We had the people and the machinery to do it. So, yes, it can be done, but generally... What Lenin said is we use elections as platforms to get our message out to literally millions of people that we normally can't do that with, and that's why we use elections. But if the possibility exists that we can get elected on a local level, then take advantage of that. But comrades, don't ever be confused and thinking on a national level we're going to get anything because the capitalists are not going to give up their billions and allow us to walk in the way DSA and other forces in the left are trying to prescribe. We'll never get socialism that way at this period, but we don't know what's gonna happen in the future. A hundred years from now, it's different. Thank you.
4: I was just wondering if somebody could explain what the Comintern's line was before this period of time.
0: To my knowledge, prior to this, it was fighting against what was called social fascism and social fascism was the idea that the social democratic parties worldwide were, by justifying the capitalist bourgeois institutions and democracies to to some extent, were essentially paving the way for fascism by subsequently opposing the left and opposing socialism. That That is uh,
2: correct. You hit it right on the head, comrade. You're learning. That's exactly it. Remember, Rosa Luxemburg, which this month, it's coming up, the murder of Rosa Luxemburg and Karl Liebknecht in Germany. They were murdered by the Freikorps, which, by the way, the Free Corps, which were former servicemen from World War I who were right-wingers, like very similar to the people that attacked the Capitol, very similar to those kind of people. And the government that was in power that allowed that to happen was the social democratic government of Ebert and Schneiderman, the so-called Weimar Republic government. So because of that, we saw clearly that social democracy paved the way to what we called fascism. So we, as the communists, called it at the time social fascism. Very similar to when you scratch a conservative, what do you find, basically, if you scratch a conservative? You find a liberal. It's that kind of idea. Thank you.
0: And just to add on to that, I saw recently that there was, I don't know which communist organization in Germany it was, but there was a march to commemorate the murder and assassination of Karl Liebknecht and Rosa Luxemburg in Germany recently. And obviously there was, you know, police were cracking heads and busting up the rally, but that definitely happened recently. And they actually died on January 15th. So that would be three days from now. I think that
5: it's important when evaluating which tactics are necessary, We must not only have knowledge of historically similar conditions, we need a conceptual understanding of them. Without an educated and principled evaluation, actions are susceptible to unintended byproducts or results. In the case of the United Front, we need to be mindful of the careful balancing between standing with others against fascism, while keeping in mind that the enemy of my enemy is not necessarily our friend. Thank you.
4: I just wanted to emphasize how William Z. Foster just hit the nail right on when he said true Leninist flexibility, which is why we're able to uh, do mass organizations and things like that.
0: I sort of wanted to echo what the last two comrades said. The quote at the beginning from Monwilski, the full name is actually Dmitry Monwilski, and if I'm not mistaken, he was the Secretary of the Executive Committee of the Comintern for just under 20 years. And when he said the tactics of a political party are not spectacles of a musty keeper of the archives who never takes them off, even when he goes to bed tactics, which are the sum total of the methods and means of struggle of a political party are precisely intended to be changed if changed circumstances require it. So that, to my knowledge, is about the best example of how a Leninist party has to be flexible in changing material conditions that i've read in a long time it very much is a marxist understanding and a leninist understanding of how political parties can and should operate and that was one i wanted to add
1: commentary policy also projected new unity relationships towards the social democrats anarcho-syndicalists catholics and other non-communist segments of the working class and the labor movement The application of the People's Front policy made imperative the need for labor unity, industrial and political, and it also created far more favorable conditions for the achievement of such unity. The Comintern rose fully to these new needs, responsibilities, and opportunities. To equip the Communist parties to apply the People's Front policy, the 7th Congress of the Comintern, carried on a two-front fight against political and ideological deviations. It warned sharply against the right dangers that sprang up in applying the new broad policy, citing numerous examples from the communist and social democratic experience. It also fired sharply into the leftist, today for us this would mean ultra-left, moods, errors, and shortcomings that had crept into the work of most of the communist parties, especially since the 6th Congress of the Comintern. Obviously, a very sharp break had to be made with sectarianism in all of its forms if the Comintern and its affiliated parties were to lead or to play a vital role in the great mass movements contemplated by the People's Front and International Peace Front policy. The 7th Congress was the last Congress ever held by the Communist International, and it was also one of the Communist International's greatest. At this historic gathering, the Comintern forces gave real leadership to the harassed peoples of the world who faced the imminent danger of fascist butchery or enslavement. The People's Front policy developed at the 7th Comintern Congress was, during the next decade, To have the most profound consequences upon the political fate of the peoples of the world
0: so does anyone on this piece right here the new tactical orientation by foster anyone have any comments on this after this we'll move to a different reading from the various communist parties in america
6: i wanted to ask what is meant by sectarianism here i can imagine some people might say sectarianism is that very kind of preaching against in a way other leftist
0: ideologies but Clearly, they mean something different here. What is the theory? um I can try to answer that, and obviously, if someone knows more than I do, please say. But with this specific excerpt from Foster, is about the orientation from fighting social fascism to fighting. The rise of actual fascism. And so when he says sectarianism, to my knowledge, Foster is specifically referencing the attitudes within the left and within the Comintern that would prioritize something else over fighting fascism. So with the new orientation, it was to place fighting fascism at the top of the list as the number one priority, and these other sectarian attitudes were trying to place something else at the top of the list, especially the ultra left. And so they were thus minimizing the efforts that the Comintern could exert towards fighting fascism. But that's my understanding of it.
2: Addendum. Sectarianism has been associated primarily with what we call ultra-leftism. Basically comes from that. Doesn't come from social democracy. It comes from the ultra-left. When a non-communist talks about sectarianism, they talk about basically what you alluded to, but when a communist talks about it, he's talking about it ideologically. So there are people who refuse, refuse on principle to work with any groups or individuals who have a different ideology than them. That's sectarianism. Refusal to compromise. Refusal to cooperate. Refusal to put themselves on an equal standing with any other ideological viewpoint. That's what Marx means by sectarianism. Thank you.
6: My question is, what do you mean when you say the ultra-left, and what are the ultra-left or leftist moods, errors, and shortcomings?
2: Ultra-left is simple. In Lenin's lifetime, he wrote a book called Left-Wing Communism, which you should all be reading New Outlook Publishers has it on their website. Left-wing Communism, An infantile disorder. This is Lenin's words. The guy who led a revolution, he calls it an infantile, childish disorder. There's something wrong with disorder, and it's called left-wing communism. Today, we call it ultra-leftism, and that is people who are more left than the Bolsheviks. They're more left than Lenin. They're more left than Stalin. They call them ultra-leftists. Usually ultra-leftists have been a detriment to what we're trying to do. We use tactics and we look at the situation, we change it when it has to be changed. An ultra doesn't do that. An ultra goes along with sectarianism. This is it, on page 43, Lenin said this in 1902, and we cannot do anything but that. That is not dialectical, of course. It's taking things out of historical context and making it in concrete. We are not people running around with the Ten Commandments the way some people do in life. And they use the Ten Commandments as their reason for being. We understand that reality changes. We're Marxists, and because of that, we have to change with it. And that's why tactics and strategy is important and the ultra-left doesn't use it. I'll give you an example of ultra-left. Trotskyites, you all heard of them. Anarchists are notorious ultra-leftists. Maoist, and what I mean by a Maoist is not Mao Zedong. A Maoist is a person who followed Mao from 1960s onward. We will consider them ultra-left in the world communist movement. What else is ultra-left? Independent, middle-class radicals tend to be more ultra-left than even people in the working-class movement who are fighting for social change. That's the best definition I can give. Thank you.
4: One thing that helped me conceptualize modern-day ultra-leftism, typically those people who denounce the DPRK or the CPC, Cuba, what I notice is people who say, well that's not real socialism, where my understanding is the dialectical approach would be to understand that it's the transitional stage and wherever they are is where they must be necessary to their material conditions whereas an ultra left would just write it off and say that's not real
0: just to expand on that in my experience personally one of the defining characteristics of someone on the ultra left a lot of these people fetishize violence and fetishize the idea of accelerating armed struggle That's very much an ultra-left perspective to take. So that would be another example of how it manifests.
6: I am a scientist for my job, so going to college and everything, learned a lot about evolution and stuff like that. I just wanted to remark on how this passage is talking about how we have to change our strategies and our tactics to fit with the time. And I kind of just liken that to evolution and survival of the fittest. If we don't change, then we're going to not be able to adapt as well, and then we're eventually going to get beaten by the fascists, and then we won't be able to do anything. So I thought that was really interesting, especially since dialectical um, materialism is a science, and obviously evolution is a science as well.
3: I was just wondering if any relationship can be identified between the implementation of the Popular Front period in Eastern Europe and then the future, you could say, rightist or market-socialist direction that
0: the people's democracies would go on to take a couple decades later in the 70s and 80s? Or was this more of kind of an overbearing revisionist influence on the part of Khrushchev? I'm not really sure if this is more of a correlation or causation type of thing.
2: It's a very interesting question. I'm listening to it, and I'm saying that's a very, very good question. I think on the surface, it looks like it came from the Popular Front thing, the whole Popular Front thing. Browder, Popular Front, 1943, the parties dissolved in this country. Stalin in 1943, the same year, by the way, the same year, dissolves the Comintern. So there is a certain correlation. I see it as going beyond the Popular Front. The whole idea of Dimitrov's Popular Front was not, N.O.T., to look at the bourgeois parties, our allies, as nothing more than the same vultures they were before, the same livers of exploitation of one man over another, of their labor. That did not change what the Popular Front period said, according to Dimitrov, is right now on the front burner of the stove, we got to start dealing with the issue of fascism. When that's finished, then we're going to go back to the class struggle. That was the original idea of the Dimitrov Popular Front. But some of the places it developed, as the comrades said, there were instances where it went beyond that, and it went into a whole new development, a whole new field. And it was the field of social democracy, of working with the capitalists, and thinking that you can really work with the capitalists? I think that's a good question. That's my answer. Thank you.
1: Trump's fascism shall not pass. America's communist and pro-worker parties react to Washington, D.C. riots. In public statements and posts on social media, communists and pro-worker parties in the United States strongly condemned the riots caused by Trump supporters in Washington, D.C., pointing out that the far right fascist and nationalist menace must be defeated by the people's struggle. In a comment on Twitter, the Party of Communists USA, PCUSA, that's us, pointed out, "The situation that happened in Capitol Hill today should show the whole country the danger of nationalism and the type of danger that Trump and his base represents. This was a taste of the terror we can expect from this group." If nothing is done about it, join and organize. From its side, an editorial published in The People's World, the newspaper of the Communist Party USA, CPUSA, underlines that Trump's fascist insurrection in D.C. aims to destroy U.S. democracy. Among others, the article reads, For years, Trump has been telling us who and what he is. A fascist, the White House, since January 2017. If he could get a general or two to go along with him and provide the troops for it, is there really any doubts anymore that Trump would completely destroy US democracy? For those paying attention, it has long been obvious that Trump was a threat to the very survival of democratic government in this country. The events in Washington on January 6th make it totally undeniable. We've said it before, and we'll say it again, no to the Trump coup. In a statement about the events in Washington, D.C., the Freedom Road Socialist Organization, Frizzo, says that racists and reactionaries must be defeated. The statement ends as follows. This attempt to keep Trump in power says a lot about the direction this country is heading in. The U.S. empire is eroding, and monopoly capitalism is a sick and dying system, and its failed political representatives were front and center in Washington, D.C. today. It is imperative that all of us who yearn for a better future act. We need to stay in the streets and fight for an agenda that represents the interests of the people. The road ahead will be a difficult one, but the future is bright. A statement about the events in the U.S. Capitol was also issued by the Party for Socialism and Liberation, PSL, which denounces Trump for inciting fascist insurrection against Congress. The events that transpired today are a serious embarrassment for the U.S. ruling class on the world stage and weaken the global position of U.S. imperialism, stresses out the PSL statement, which ends in the following words. What really must happen is that all those responsible for today's historic act of fascist aggression must be brought to justice. This especially includes Donald Trump and those in the military and police hierarchy who use their positions to facilitate today's events. A coalition built on collusion between the police, elements of the Department of Defense, and a fascist mob has launched an unprecedented attack. The menace of the far right can only be decisively defeated by a militant, united front of the multinational working class.
0: One thing that just jumped out to me when we were reading these is I see two statements in here that are actually calling for people to actively move and materially organize. One of those comes from us, the PCUSA, and the other comes from Frizzo. In Frizzo, it says, it is imperative that all of us who yearn for a better future act. And then our statement is... This is a taste of the terror we can expect from this group. If nothing is done about it, join and organize. I just wanted to note that in the CPUSA statement, there's nothing in there that is telling people to mobilize. There's nothing in there that tells people to organize. And there's nothing that says anything about a united front of the working class. And I just thought that was very interesting and such a pivotal moment that a communist organization would not include in their statement a call for the workers to action. I thought that was very peculiar.
6: It's a pretty critical time. I know all of us are thinking about this and trying to analyze it and trying to make best use of the information that we've been given by these people who did this act. And they've given us information. Some things are coming into light about the way Trump behaved that day and how he refused to pick up the phone for Congress people who were begging him to do something about these people running through the building. But he didn't want to be bothered. He wanted to sit and watch it on TV. He is a fascist. He's mobilizing people on his
7: side, and I'm glad that we're becoming aware of it and we're analyzing it. I wanted to add on to the previous discussion about ultra-leftism and accelerationists. There is another group that came. It was a group of college students. It was an organization called the Weather Underground or called the Weathermen that consisted of college kids that incited acts such as bombings and attacking police authorities and want to point out that people like Fred Hampton criticized them for being chauvinistic, opportunistic, and cussaristic. I just want to add to that. Thank
6: you very much, Comrade. Great point, Comrade.
0: So, it's
7: very funny. Mike is an American Patriot 3% militia member, and it's just <laughs> bizarre how We're siblings, and yet the environmental pressures have just pushed us to opposite ends of the political spectrum. It's just a very funny observation, and sent me a wild conspiracy theory video in response to this, and it's really polarized lots of folks, and now I know where it stands, and it just kind of hurts, you know.
2: Could I answer that very (laughs) quickly? Let me tell you what I've learned. Life in general, I'm 73 now, so I've been through all this. Life, in general, is an amalgamation of relationships we have with individuals as we go through life, all kinds of ways. People we work with on the assembly line, people we go to church with, people that are relatives or in our family, neighbors. We have to have a different relationship. If we're going to have a barometer in our life, that everybody has to agree with us, we're going to get an ulcer. We're going to get an ulcer at an early age, and we're not going to be able to do the political work that we need to do. So what I've done is I've compartmentalized my life in compartments. And for me, it's work. I don't know other people. But people that are right-wing, fascist, I try to get another thing to talk to them about. So let's, I noticed one woman in my union who was a conservative and I was a communist, So what did we have in common? We both were into architecture. So that's what we talked about. She respected me as a communist, and I respected her with a conservative viewpoint. I didn't try to convert her comrades, and she didn't try to convert me. Don't try to convert people in your family who are different. Try to find another level of working together with them on where you don't have to have an ulcer. If you don't have that, then just avoid each other. That's all I could say. Thank you.
4: I don't know how profound of an observation it is. I found it a little bit strange. I believe it was the first statement, CPUSA, the framing, especially the highlighted use of the word democracy. I felt it very much legitimized U.S. democracy, where I feel like a leading communist party should really be pointing out the contradictions rather than justifying but I don't know if anyone else kind of thought that or felt that.
2: Yeah, I'll make it very quick. I'm going to give you Lenin's, wrote a pamphlet, very small pamphlet on this, on bourgeois democracy, it's called. Now notice, he put an adjective in front of the word democracy. All communists do that. We say the Soviet Union had socialist democracy. The United States has bourgeois democracy. We never talk about democracy in general as an entity without putting an adjective in front of it. The only ones who do that, unfortunately, are social democrats. And that party has become a social democratic party. Their view is very clear. We will get socialism, not the way we had in the Soviet Union, but the way we had it in Sweden. We will get socialism through legislation. That's their analysis. They've told us this. I was in that party. I know they're lying. And they really believe it. It doesn't mean that they're bad people. It just means that they're messed up as communists. But we will get socialism through increments. Look at the word increment. Little, little legislation here and there eventually we will arrive at Socialism. That's their analysis. They support the Democratic Party because they believe the Democratic Party will bring socialism, but the socialism it will bring will still keep the means of production in the hands of private interest. They're very much calling for something similar to market socialism. I don't know if you realize that. They're supporters of market socialism. That's why they go to China Come back and praise the economy of China. They praise that economy because they want that here. They want a market socialist economy here, which is not socialism. We all know that. And so, therefore, I just want to clarify that. Their, their ideology has changed from revolution to evolution, and it's changed from a Leninist party of a new type to the Democratic Party. So the bourgeois party, the Democratic Party, can bring a socialism. That's their analysis, thank you.
1: I noticed the same thing about the CPUSA stance and I just thought that was weird, but now that you explain that their social democratic party, it makes sense. But my question is rather on the PCUSA statement and the fact that it says like the danger of nationalism. And so my question is, the way I see it, I don't think that all nationalism is inherently bad. I think that there's revolutionary nationalism that exists in any, every country, and I think that in the United States it can be the same way. So what exactly is the party line on that?
2: Yeah, recently the ideological department of the party put out a whole thing on nationalism and internationalism. In fact, I urge people to get a pamphlet written by Liu Xiaoxi, in the early 30s, who was the, one of the leaders of the party in China, one of the organizers of the revolution of 1949, he wrote this pamphlet called Nationalism and Internationalism. And he gives, from a third world viewpoint, remember China had been invaded by Japan. It was a colony of Western European colonialism. And he gives his view, and I'm going to give you the same view, Nationalism can have two parts. It doesn't have to be reactionary. We in our party, we do not use the word nationalism. We call ourselves patriots, in case people didn't know that. We call ourselves patriots. We don't call ourselves nationalists. Nationalism has a certain connotation. If you ever heard the word male chauvinism, that's similar to white chauvinism. White nationalism, do you see the thread that goes through those ideas? It stresses that we are better than others. White men are better than white women. Black men are better than black women. That's all the chauvinist, the male chauvinist thing. But it goes along the same thing with nationalism. There is parts in our history that we have to be proud of. The Shea Rebellion in the early years of our republic. They should be proud of that. We should be proud of people picking up the muskets in 1770s against the biggest colonializer on the planet at the time, and that was the British crown. This country did that. No other country that was a colony at that time did that. So what Lenin would call wars of national liberation, national liberation, that kind of nationalism is positive. Ho Chi Minh vietnam the cuba revolution was against western specifically u.s colonial enterprises in cuba that kind of nationalism from a third world country that is under the yoke of an imperialist country that's a positive nationalism the part that's not positive is going around to other countries and using their economy, setting up military bases. So nationalism doesn't have to be bad. It could have a positive and negative aspect to it. I don't know if I answered your question.
1: Yes, it's answered. Thank you.
2: My question was about how Twitter banned Trump from using their platform. I just wanted to hear what other comrades thought about it.
3: When I saw it happen, I thought it was good at first. But is corporate censorship really that beneficial isn't it just whitewashing i i'm not sure
7: i'm not sure so i want to hear what other people think thank you
2: i could tell you the party line very carefully from the very beginning the communist party has been calling for curtailment of civil rights for nazis from the very beginning we are not civil libertarians we are not liberals we don't want free speech for nazis We don't want that. There are people, we do feel that there should be free speech for the left, because when the government attacks one left group, they set on record a president to attack another left group. But we don't want freedom for the Nazis. After what they did to the humanity in Europe, with the concentration camp, no, no. That's opposition. Thank you. Comrades, listen carefully. Uh, If you're on these phone calls, you'll hear things that are different. On the issue of fascism, I want you to know that there are people who sincerely think that they're communist, but they think they know more about ideology than Comrade Stalin. They think they know a hell of a lot more about ideology than a central committee of a communist party. I call them individuals infected with American individualism. Mm-hmm. And there's a real problem among people in this country against the collective. They think the collective is going to take away their freedom. They think the collective is a bad, negative thing. But the individual is supposedly put on a pedestal. Well, the reason why I'm telling you that is because on this whole issue of Trump, there are people who in our party who are no longer with us. Thank goodness they left us. And these were seniors. They weren't children. They had this view. One comrade said, We will never have fascism in this country. This is who claims they're communists. We will never have fascism in this country because the ruling class is already fascist. That's a statement of someone who claims they're a communist. Another one said, Trump and Biden are both fascists. Biden is a silent fascist and Trump is a vocal fascist. Could you imagine that kind of terminology? When a real fascism comes, these people will not fight it. They will not fight it because they claim in their own personal ideology that fascism either cannot happen here, there's no reason for the system to allow fascists since they're already in control. All this kind of terminology. I'm warning everybody in this phone call because I've heard this from two people who they should have known better. In fact, I think it's an ultra-left view to throw everybody together in the same bucket. And you hear it from the ultra-left. We basically live in a fascist country now. That's their analysis. Think about that. That's all I wanted to say. So the Communist Party of Greece,
1: General Secretary, on U.S. Capitol events, the mirror of a society in deep decay. Commenting on the events in the United States and the storming of Capitol by pro-Trump supporters, the General Secretary of the CC of the Communist Party of Greece, Dimitris Kautzoumbas said, the incidents in Washington, D.C. and the planned invasion of far-right reactionary forces in the Capitol cannot be solely explained by Trump's idiosyncrasy. It is the mirror of a society in deep decay, a world of massive competitions, realignment in the correlation of power, crisis and emphasis, whose consequences are paid by the people and which are now becoming more apparent even in the most powerful capitalist country in the world. Those who are surprised in the face of the bankruptcy of American democracy perhaps forget that it is the one that has caused dozens of wars, destructions of countries, coups, overthrows of elected governments, and bloodshed of people, both with Republican and Democratic governments. The other side of the same coin is the exploitation, poverty, repression, racism, the long-standing problems of the American people themselves. That is why the return to normalcy is not going to treat these impasses and big contradictions. The people around the world and of course the American people themselves need to be vigilant in order to prevent this crisis in the USA from becoming the starting point or the trigger for a new round of escalation of the US imperialism's aggression.
4: What I want to say is, yeah, we should be reaching out to our neighbors about these things. And I think it's really important to, outside of your job, speak your opinion and your ideology, your community, in the sense that you can interact with them in every day and sparking ideologies that they may have not have already had. So don't think that it's helpful to be condescending to those individuals that might you know, have QAnon conspiracies in their head or ideologies of right-wing, job semantics?
1: I guess the only thing I was sort of thinking after the discussion on that Capitol Hill insurrection was I suppose the uh, motivation or ideology for a lot of the people behind it. I, just, I guess I wanted to know what everyone's opinion on it was. I mean, you also saw a lot of, very racialized aspects as well. You know, people with Confederate flags, Proud Boys, and things like that. So just wanted to get everyone's opinion.
0: I know that the night it happened on January 6th, the Politburo put out a statement that described sort of what you're asking in terms of how we would characterize that group.
8: Basically, what's happened over the last few years, these people have always been around and they've always been like a subculture And they didn't just come out of nowhere. However, they've always had to sort of like mind their P's and Q's, so to speak. They had their own websites and they talked among themselves. However, the ruling class basically was just as afraid of them as we were afraid of them. And what happened is that uh, in the last four years of this president, they were basically given carte blanche to sort of like come out of the woodwork. And by the words and actions of Trump, they basically felt that they were enabled. And what happened on Wednesday, that they felt that they were true patriots fighting for their president and their country. And against the forces of evil, it was almost as if you think that the left was forming a coup. Trump, we know, is bullshit, And Trump is basically using this. And he knows his voice. These people don't.
4: So I think one thing that I could comment on is Comrade Angelo's
0: stressing about how important it is for us to be very precise when labeling something as fascist. Because I was in a conversation with somebody the other day who is a conservative. And I was talking about how this was a fascist riot or a fascist push, as we're calling it. And he was thinking that I was labeling it fascist in the same way that a lot of the liberals would label pretty much anything as fascist. And I was trying to be very, very clear about the fact that when I am using fascist, I'm using it in its historical actual like, context rather than just anything possibly even slightly right wing as fascist. And so I definitely do think it's important to be very precise with that because people get very confused and it loses all meaning. And that echoes to a point that I've heard Angela talk about before, and that's that we cannot be people who cry wolf, that if we're going around calling everything fascist, and it's been fascist for the past 20 years, when the real thing actually pops up, the people that we need to help, are they actually going to believe us if we've been going around calling the same thing fascist for the past 20 years?
4: I guess piggybacking off of what we've just been talking about, couldn't the argument be made that in fact that our BIPOC and LGBTQ comrades have, in fact, been living in a fascist USA forever? Or, I mean, the U.S.'s imperialism, is that not fascistic? Our foreign policy could be argued to also be fascistic.
2: Yeah, I wanted to answer that. Lenin said it best. Imperialism is the highest stage of capitalism. He wrote a whole book on that, by that title. Capitalism does not equal fascism. Dimitrov gives the best answer to what fascism is. It's the most, M-O-S-T, that's the thing you should underline. It's the most reactionary, the most chauvinistic, the most racist, and the key word, by the way, is reactionary, the most reactionary. They're the people that form the basis of fascism. And fascism is, according to Dimitrov, when the ruling class, the capitalist class, can no longer govern society the way they did before. They governed it with a velvet glove for most of the people. When they can't do that, when the people are uppity, when the trade unions go on strike, they start to have class consciousness, when the Black Lives Matter starts moving, notice That's when fascism arises. So the ruling class doesn't use the velvet glove anymore. They take out the iron fist, and they're going to continue to rule, but using an iron fist. So both of them come from capitalism, but they're not ruled the same way. Civil liberties are the first thing that go out of the door when fascism comes. Under a capitalist government, That is not fascist, you have civil liberties. But you don't have that under a fascist thing. And as far as other people who are oppressed living under fascism, they have been living not under fascism. They've been living under basically a bigoted capitalist state. That's what they have been living under, ruled by reactionaries. And it's not the same as fascism. When you go through fascism, you see the difference right away. Thank you.
3: We talked about the importance of organizing our
2: party and a couple others
3: have made the call for us to organize. And I think we have to keep this in mind that despite the events and despite the growing uh, fascist movements, we also know that at the moment, at present, we're in a better state because this didn't lead to mass movements. It didn't lead to a mass uprising on a similar scale. So there's an opportunity for us to get out there and mobilize and get people before the situation gets worse and they start splitting up to that end. So thank you all, everybody. What I just wanted to comment about is something that is kind of glaringly obvious now that some people push this accelerationist line regarding Trump and the whole kit and caboodle with all the right-wing people where they kind of forget the class nature and just the nature of fascism and how it works. Is how, exactly how they say, it's the most reactionary and therefore most imperialist people are going to be in charge. Some people think that getting Trump or someone similar like that in power would make somehow the working class rise up and realize all of a sudden that communism is the answer. But a big historical example there. Hitler, who obviously didn't keep fascism in his own backyard, but overall, great class. Thank you.
5: When the General Secretary of the KKE, which is a very admirable communist party, by the way, when the comrade speaks about how the return to normalcy is not going to treat these impasses and contradictions, I think it very much shines light on how necessary the party and its goal of building socialism is. Not only is this important domestically for the daily life of our nation, but we cannot forget how important it is internationally to those who are on the receiving end of imperialist aggression. Thank you.
6: I just wanted to speak on our discussion of nationalism earlier. And we've talked about this in the past, but it's kind of ineffective to talk to average people, especially if they're just liberals or conservatives, just try and talk about the bad things in our nation's history and to basically say America is bad. That'll just alienate people because there have been really good and progressive things in our history. And that's really worth focusing on. In fact, the GDR, the German Democratic Republic, known better as East Germany, actually made sure that they emphasized the very progressive elements in their history to make sure people loved and believed in their country as a progressive force for good. And this is Germany. This is Germany that just fresh off of Nazism. So these people had a huge history of reactions and they could have focused on that. And Germans have been imperialists, too, but they didn't focus on that. They focused on the progressive elements. So that's a very Marxist-Leninist thing to do is to focus on progressive elements of history.
0: And that also speaks to what was mentioned earlier about how we have to be the patriots of our country in contrast to the nationalists. For
3: those of you who wanted to learn a bit more about left-wing communism, I'd familiarize yourself with two gentlemen of the Italian Communist Party uh, before its defeat by the fascists in Italy. Their names are Amadio Bordiga, who Lenin leveraged his book Left-Wing Communism, An Infantile Disorder Against, and the gentleman he had frequent disagreements with in the party, Antonio Gromsky, who was the Marxist-Leninist. So if you wanted to learn more about left-wing communism, learn about the two disagreements that those two had. Thank you.
7: The reason why Trump rised, and I'll take this from another example from Michael Perender's Shirts and Reds, a great book recommendation, fascism presents itself as bringing a new order while supporting the same old money hands, how Trump was pretending to be anti-establishment for the decaying establishment, but instead was actually supporting the establishment at the same time
0: on one hand i thought it was very important the comments about the ultra left that were made tonight There was a good definition given some good observations Uh, but for those on the phone call that are not familiar with the ultra left definitely recommend reading lenin's left-wing communism and infantile disorder and not just that but coming to understand the current ultra-left trends within the united states because obviously that's the ultra-left that we're going to have to be combating and interacting with the most and so understanding what ultra-left tendencies are Why they need to be avoided and how to identify them are going to be really important for everyone on this phone call to ensure that we don't drift into sectarianism as we obviously escalate down this political road in the country that we're all not too fond of at the moment.
2: I think it was a great class tonight, which just as good as the one we had Thursday in the same subject matter. But I just want to warn everyone, this is not over. This is the beginning. What happened on Wednesday, January 6th, is the beginning. We're going through a new phase in this country now. And in my lifetime, I'm 73, I haven't seen a fascist movement in this country that was as well organized as they claim it was not organized. That was organized. They had contact with police departments inside and outside of the Capitol. Things were done, I'll give you an example, the National Guard are in Washington right now preparing for what they hear are going to be uprisings, and I call them uprisings from the right. One of our people is in that, is in the National Guard, he's there and called me last night and gave him a report. And listen to what's going on. From the top down, the military has told them not to have any bullets no bullets, that they are to have a bat or something, something to hold with their hands. That's what National Guard meant. When they sent them into Kent State in 1970, May 4th, 1970, Kent State, they murdered a couple of students there with real guns, and that was over the War of Vietnam because they were protesting American imperialism. That's what they were doing. So for the National Guard to be not equipped, There's something else going on behind the scenes. People are saying the military is not with them. I doubt that. I think there are people in different levels of the military that support Trump's agenda. And so this is just the beginning. If Trump is off the scene, they're going to send somebody in to replace him because this is a certain section of monopoly capital that wants to change direction, and that's all I want to say, and thank you all for coming. Good night.